Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Catch new episodes of The O Show for free, available on all audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. For full video versions of the podcast, head on over to YouTube and StarWorldWideNetworks.com. The O Show is presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness is an inclusive, high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ Floyd Money Mayweather himself. The best group boxing workout in the market, Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to the O Show podcast, episode 435 of the podcast. We are presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale, Arizona. VIP week kicked off last night on the 26th, the grand opening for Mayweather Boxing and Fitness in Scottsdale, Arizona is October 30th. This Saturday, sign up for your membership now. A lot going down this week here in the heart of downtown Scottsdale. We're also presented by betonline.ag. Get your 50% bonus by signing up at betonline.ag. We got week eight of the NFL coming up. Game two of the World Series tonight between the Braves and the Astros. Our guest today is Mr. Stan Rhino Efforting. Do you have a sports team in mind? Because again, you are you're an athlete. I think it's safe to say that. Indeed. You know, I follow athletes, not necessarily teams. Right. I've been like that for 30 years. Uh, you know, it was the Jordan show and it was uh, uh, Jerry Rice and, uh, you know, just great athletes over the years. And, uh, you know, even now that I've been working with so many great professional athletes, I, I follow them and their journeys and their discipline and their hard work. And that's what's motivating to me. Yeah, I almost like it in that sense of you, it lives or dies with you as, you know, an athlete, whether you're a mixed martial artist or, you know, you're like whatever you're doing, like you as a power lifter competing, like you're doing it when it lives and dies with you as opposed to relying on teammates sometimes where it doesn't work out. And like you're, you're training a bunch of guys like John Jones right now is looking to make his heavyweight debut. How has that been going for you? Has it been challenging, like from both ends of the spectrum, you training him as well as I feel like he's pushing you at the same time? It has been because I train with him yeah. every day and I found that's the way to get the most out of an athlete is when you can push them. Uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, because my top end strength is good, there's a lot of things I can push him on. He has a lot better stamina. He's got great, uh, you know, back strength from all those years of wrestling and Greco-Roman and the like. And so, um, you know, it's just been, it's been great to, to try and see how much we can wring out of him. Uh, but along the way, you know, I'm 53 and he's 33. So, uh, recovery becomes kind of the, the 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 challenge, but he does two a days. He'll do MMA practices at night, and I'll do uh, you know the weightlifting with him in the morning. And so uh, you know he's able to recover, and we watch fatigue very closely and very carefully to make sure that uh, he's getting you know all of the the necessary training for a well-rounded MMA athlete. Not just you know right now we're mostly doing adding muscle to him because he's wants to be. Uh, damn near 260s and high 250s right now and then over time we'll transition into more strength and then more endurance and uh, but it's speed strength work mostly now so we're doing explosive stuff but we're also doing a lot of um, uh, a bodybuilding style repetitions a lot of range of motion a lot of volume and frequency yeah i was gonna say like a, a 20 age a nearly 20 age year gap you know different body types too like obviously he's looking to bulk up and it's why it works, but like how, how difficult or easy was it to have a game plan in motion when you guys started 
training together? Was he on board with everything they had planned out? Because obviously you know what you're talking about. He knows what he's looking to do as a fighter. Was it was it easy figuring out a diet, a regimen, a training program, and everything? It really was. One of the important things is that you get an athlete's confidence, and if they trust you and your expertise, then uh, and you sit down and find out what they want, and you design a program that's optimal. Um, once they buy in, then it's just a matter of doing the work. And so uh, he's been very cooperative, very hardworking, uh, probably even pushes himself further than what we might have suggested. And so we just have to constantly monitor fatigue and make sure we're progressing. Yeah, I watched a video of you guys like on a bike ride, and it was supposed to just be like a cool-off day, and then you guys ended up you know, challenging each other, just competing against each other. It turned into a full-blown workout by the end of it. That's, that's fun. I feel like that's what yes, really indeed. like sets your souls on fire in a sense. You guys are constantly driving yourselves to be better training together as opposed to it being one way or the other. And that's what's great about training with competitive people and athletes in general. It's iron sharpens iron. And so we get in there every day and we, we find some way to compete and set PRs or beat the other person at something. And uh, there's no shortage of shit talking along the way. We're really enjoying the the process and so we thrive on that that's what we every workout we're we're like you know we're talking shit i'm gonna do this and you're gonna you know do that and uh and so we designed the workout to to make sure that we're we're progressing uh you know every step of the way we're getting bigger stronger faster throughout the whole process well that's awesome and i have so much i want to you know get into and pick your brain about because when you started your journey not only as a power lifter as an entrepreneur and everything else that you're doing you, we talked about it before. You went to the University of Oregon, grew up in Oregon, you know, lived in the Seattle area for nearly 20 years before uh, making the move to the sunny Las Vegas, Nevada. When you first started, correct me if I'm wrong, your first competition that you did, you weighed in at 158 pounds, which probably felt like That's forever correct. ago. Yeah, I was yeah. A, yeah, I was a skinny kid, so it took me a long time to put on mass. I also... Uh, didn't have the knowledge and the information that we have today. So I was overtraining and undereating. And when mm. I flipped that script, I was able to start gaining more size and mass and strength. But it took me, I think, the better part of uh, eight plus years before I was big enough and strong enough to compete in powerlifting. Uh, of course, bodybuilding has weight classes as well. And so I was able to squeak into the novice, lightweight, 158 pound class in my first show. That goes all the way back to 1986. So I've been doing this a long time. I'm persistent and I'm patient and I'm consistent. And that's uh, kind of is what helped me. It took me till I was 40 to get my pro card uh, in bodybuilding. And I set my world records after 40 also. So uh, it's just been a passion of mine all my life, which it kind of has to be if you, uh, you have to be patient because for most people, it takes many, many, many years uh, to put on a significant amount of mass and to develop a significant amount of strength. We see these outliers, the um, Larry Wheels of the world, these young cats that uh, they can do fantastic things in their early 20s, but there's not a lot of them. It takes uh, it takes most of us, you know, a decade or more of training to, to get the tendon strength and, uh, you know, just the, the ability to handle those kind of loads. So uh, a lot of folks, they want kind of an overnight solution. Now they're, they're you know, they weighed up and they have world records in a couple of years. They want to become a pro bodybuilder and, you know, or a physique figure athlete in a couple of years and it, it, for the vast majority of people it doesn't happen that way it's a decade 
No, I feel like if you want to do it the right way and the healthy way, that's going to benefit you in the long term, down the long road. You have to do it. It's going to take 10, maybe 20 years for some people, whether you're a bodybuilder or you're even looking to put on 30 pounds of healthy muscle over time, just just to, you know, bulk up a little bit. So when, when was it for you when you started uh, wanting to, you know, bulk up as a young kid? Because, again, like I guess some would say, like some would say, I'm scrawny, you scrawny kid, 140, 150 pounds. When did you know that you really wanted to pursue this as a thing? And when did, when did it just really latch on to you? That was my freshman year of college. My soccer coach, I had a college uh, soccer scholarship. He asked me to go lift weights. I was too small to play soccer. I was about 135, 140 pounds. He wanted me to yeah. get a little bigger. And that summer, I spent three months lifting. And then I came back and told him I quit. I'm, I'm going to lift weights. I started looking at the magazines and uh, it seems so strange for a scrawny little 140 pound kid to want to be a pro bodybuilder because at the time for a six foot guy, you needed to be 240 plus on stage. Wow. They only had, uh, you know, heavyweight bodybuilding was everything over 198. And at my height, uh, those guys who were winning those shows were, were huge. You know, they were 240, 250 pounds. So, um, but you know, I didn't let that deter me. I just, I just kept knuckling it down and, and, and working. I have that kind of personality anyhow, as a lot of type A's do, or uh, I'm a bit uh, OCD. And so the whole regimen of, of uh, training, eating on a schedule and, uh, you know, dieting and competing uh, kind of, it really worked well for me because uh, I like to keep that kind of rigid schedule um, and have those, those carrots dangling in front of me as, as goals. Um, and you just, you know, you start out novice and the lightweight, and then you work up to middleweight and eventually, you know, you might get into the open class. And, uh, these days, of course, we have uh, physique, we have, uh, uh, men's, uh, uh, what are they? The, the, uh, the men's bikini class is uh, yep. with the board yeah. shorts. Uh, so, I mean, there's lots of opportunities for people of all different sizes and shapes to be able to go in and compete now. It's, uh, I think it's much more friendly, uh, and a lot, uh, uh I think fewer barriers to entry for people if they just want to get out there and get some experience and compete and, and progress. Yeah, that's interesting how that's evolved over time when you look at, you know, different, because again, like, I feel like you growing up as opposed to me growing up in that, like, if you didn't have that, like, it just wasn't, you know, accepted for what you wanted to do for like the competitions that you wanted to pursue where now it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more accepted to do other things to fit someone's body type and what they're actually able to accomplish as opposed to someone really not having the tools to bulk up that much in a healthy way and then they, they feel pressure to start using certain supplements, certain steroids, certain drugs, and then that over time, that, I mean, that doesn't do good for anybody. Right. And, you know, the, the, one of the big things is that uh, I think that folks get discouraged by looking at the the finish line rather than embracing the journey. I really loved and still love lifting. I haven't competed in seven years. I was just in the gym this morning squatting until, you know, I, I think I did 635 this morning with no knee wraps or sleeves. And four days ago, I did three sets of 20s. You know, it's just crushing myself, but I love it. I enjoy it. I love the way it feels. And so, you know, I don't recommend, uh, you know, the kinds of things that I do for anybody that doesn't enjoy it. Yeah. It's not, it's not necessary. And if, if their goals uh, are different, then I just try and find something that they can meet their goals with. That's uh, what I call simple, sensible, and sustainable. So it becomes a lifestyle.
I know you, you know, talked about before, you know, it, it being a lifestyle. Like, this is the thing that really makes you tick. It's, it's almost an itch in a sense. Like you said, like, just squatting this morning, like, it feels good. Like, it's something that you kind of have to do. It's kind of like a morning cup of coffee or, you know, getting a certain thing done before you can really start your day. Uh, growing up, and, you know, you talked about having all the different types of trainings, certain types of meal plans, making a ton of mistakes early on. Uh, you know, because you could make mistakes and then fix those mistakes, and then over a long period of time, your body plateaus, and then you got to figure out something else. Like, there's so much that actually goes into it. It, it is a full-time gig, almost, doing what, what you've accomplished from a bodybuilding perspective. Uh, how many mistakes did you make uh, growing up when it came to just dieting and eating as much as you could, lifting as he heavy as you could, and what did you learn along the way? Uh, you know, on both ends of the spectrum, when I was dieting for shows, I would do the over-restrictive diets with the excessive cardio. I would eat egg whites and tilapia and broccoli, and I would do an hour and a half of treadmill a day. And I just got smaller and weaker, uh, lost a lot of the muscle that I'd earned in the off-season. It's just not a, a smart road to take. Um, and, you know, we still see that today. We still see a lot of people that, uh, particularly in the women's divisions in the bikini and, and figure, they sacrifice a ton of muscle just to get down to a particular scale weight. So I learned that I needed to keep certain uh, food items, nutrition items in. And for me, it was red meat as a foundation and, um, you know, fruits, carbs. I had to keep those in just so my training stimulus uh, could stay um, significant enough to maintain muscle tissue. And then not over cardio because that would thin out my legs, which that's always been a, a struggle for me uh, in terms of, of uh, you know, uh, body parts that were strengths and weaknesses. And then on the other end of the spectrum, when I was bulking, I learned many times uh, by dirty bulking on, you know, the Gomad gallon of milk a day diet and cheese pizzas before bed and, uh, you know, a whole host of other just calories for calories uh, that if in with too big of a surplus, then you start compromising uh, both your health and your body composition. I on many occasions, I had blood tests probably throughout most of my career, uh, over 200 tests in 30 years and probably over 120 tests in the last 12 years of my uh, competition since 2006. And so I saw things, uh, uh, you know, that you would see, such as uh, metabolic syndrome, some indicators of fatty liver, high triglycerides, uh, um, high uh, LDLs, uh, elevated blood pressure, uh, those kinds of things would manifest as a result of just too many calories, too much body fat. Um, you know, you could get really strong and you could add muscle, but uh, by the time you dieted off all that extra fat, you would lose a significant amount of the muscle that you had earned. Uh, mm. It took longer to diet it off, and so you were in a calorie deficit phase for more months of the year than you needed to be as a result of putting on unwanted fat. And so, you know, I learned by trial and error that, uh, you know, to... to uh, both on the dieting end, to keep more nutrient-dense foods in, uh, more carbs in, less cardio, and train my way into the show, doing uh, more weightlifting. And then on the bulking end, I learned to stay at a smaller surplus and to uh, to eat a little cleaner. So I wasn't um, basically trying to still keep my fats down, keep my fats reasonable, and using carbs to drive the workload and do more volume uh, rather than less frequent heavier, longer rest period type of workouts uh, for bodybuilding in particular. So those are the lessons I learned. That's what we've seen today with the science that uh, supports uh, those methods. Uh, those are the recommendations that are coming from all of the accredited 
PhDs in the nutrition industry and bodybuilding, which we have a lot of now. I didn't have that information back then. Uh, the internet didn't exist, and we didn't have so many people interested in exercise science and doing the research and the studies mm -hmm. for us. People who uh, not only have the the you know academic credentials, but also compete in powerlifting and bodybuilding. And they're all saying, not all of them, but most of us are saying the same thing. Uh, lessons that we've learned, and and you know, to be honest, they're humble about it. To, you know, they're saying the bros were right. And the vast majority of successful bodybuilders and powerlifters and over throughout history, uh, when I say vast majority of successful, I'm talking about the successful ones. There's a lot of um, people out there who still, you know, did it wrong and still do it wrong uh, and don't realize the level of success that they could. Uh, but most of, most of those who are successful have followed kind of that, the same philosophy that I just broke down with their dieting or, or bulking. Uh, just to hold on to muscle tissue and not get uh, overly unhealthy and overly fat, uh, depending on whether they're cutting or bulking. Right. I mean, I feel like it's got to be very frustrating. Like, one, if you put in all the work to gain that muscle and then you lose it by having the wrong diet, like, that's just, A, frustrating and not fun mentally from a mental standpoint. And, B, if you're trying to put that muscle back on, eventually it's not going to come back the same way, I feel like. No, no. When you, if you plus losing and gaining and losing and gaining uh, and doing those yo-yo diets, uh, it does change. We see this with dieters in particular. It does. Uh, you get metabolic adaptation. And it does uh, cause your basal metabolic rate to decline. So it's just not optimal by any stretch of the imagination. We've we've seen it over and over and over again uh, that the dirty bulking, getting too heavy, uh, and then trying to to shred up takes longer, you never get as hard, you lose all the, the tissue that you that you built. So you just have to be more patient. It goes right back to, to having a long-term plan and being consistent. Muscle doesn't build on your body at any it's, you know, fast pace. It's very, very slow and gradual, and you have to continually be in an anabolic environment with a slight surplus, adequate sleep, um, you know, a progressing stimulus in the, in the gym. Um, and that has to just continue to get uh, better and better if you, as you get closer and closer to your, uh, which maybe your genetic set point would be, or, you know, the gains are going to stop. What would you say in everything that you just said before is the biggest difference between strength training and actual bodybuilding? Because again, like you went through those trials and errors growing up and I, I know that you trained, uh, with Flex Wheeler too at, at a young age and he basically said no bench press, no squats, no deadlifts for what, like six months? Yeah, it was at least that. And the reason being is, is because uh, I was already powerlifting for 20 years before I met Flex. Mm. And so I was, I was using leverages. I was very strong in the glutes and the lumbar area. And so that would dominate my squats. And I wouldn't get adequate range of motion or quad uh, stimulus because my, my glutes would take over. Dorian expressed the same concern, and you saw him doing leg presses and hack squats so he could isolate and have a greater range of motion, which now we're seeing from the literature. Uh, that range of motion is, is uh, you know, a key contributor to hypertrophy. Um, you know, deadlifting, another, another exercise that has very limited range of motion and a lot of fatigue and lumbar spine loading, central nervous system fatigue which increases your delayed onset muscle soreness. So you can't train with the same amount of frequency or volume, uh, which is critical for bodybuilding is to, to grow frequency and volume over time and to have adequate recovery. 
So all those things were reasons whether Flex uh, you know, designed it that way or not. He just he knew for bodybuilding I would have to do a lot more frequency and volume. We would train two-a-days. Uh, we would do higher repetitions between the 12 and 20 range, a little shorter rest periods, around two minutes. Uh, whereas in powerlifting, you're taking 10-minute breaks. You might do you know, five sets in an hour and a half, uh, and you probably only train heavy once a week, and the other time would be maybe some speed work. So uh, I don't think that, I've said this many times, I don't think there's any benefit to powerlifting for a bodybuilder. Yeah. Uh, being stronger doesn't make you bigger. Uh, there's, you know, mechanical tensions all, all, all is important, but uh, just for all, all the things that I just mentioned, you can get the same amount of hypertrophy from a heavy five rep set as you can from a, a moderate 12 rep set or a light 20 rep set, as long as they're taken within a rep or two of failure. But the 10 to 15 rep range in there in the middle is less fatiguing, so you can do more frequency and volume and grow that over time, less potential for injury. Um, and so those things become, you know, the, the important uh, components of, of growing muscle. So that's what Flex focused on most with me, and that's when I, I really had the most volume in my legs, uh, hamstrings. Um, Plus, we wouldn't train more than an hour. You can train longer, you can train hard, but you can't do both. And so right. we would come in and crush it for about 40 to 50 minutes in the morning uh, and then about 30 minutes at night and um, do it, you know, push-pull legs, repeat, push-pull legs, day off on Sunday. So it was a six days straight with a three-body three part split, push-pull legs. Uh, but we would do, on push day, we would do chest in the morning and triceps and shoulders at night. We would do... Uh, quads in the morning, hamstrings at night on leg day, on back day, but back in the morning and biceps at night. And so um, we were able to get, uh, you know, a lot of volume in, but those shorter uh, workouts, uh, you have what we refer to as um, uh, when you try and train too long, you get diminishing returns and you also break down more muscle tissue. So it's harder to recover. Uh, you have to be careful with, with, uh, how much muscle tissue you break down during a workout, and even what the kind of foods that you use to help prevent or recover from those workouts, which is particularly going to be carbohydrates. Um, you know, they're they're not just for performance. Uh, you know, drinking some carbs during and immediately post workout can help uh, mitigate some of the muscle damage, and mm -hmm. you can so you can recover a little quicker. These are small things for elite uh, competitive athletes, but they make a difference, and so. Because you really need to push, keep pushing and pushing and pushing uh, the envelope in terms of volume and frequency in order to stimulate growth. Because your body gets you get less and less results over time as a result of being closer and closer to your potential. Do you think if you had all of this information from like a technological standpoint, just being able to look this stuff up, you would have made a lot less mistakes as a young uh, aspiring bodybuilder, or do you think that, again, like going back to the way the body is, like it's going to take time no matter what, but at the same time, you probably wouldn't have broken down your body and your muscles as many times as you probably did early on? Yeah, I'd have done a lot better. I always say if I knew then what I know now, I would have done a lot better. I would have been a lot smarter with my training. I did get very strong in powerlifting, even though my bodybuilding career suffered. I wasn't able to like at the USA's, I never cracked the top 15. I think I took uh, fourth in the junior USA's. You know, I won state championships and regional championships. But uh, when I got to the big shows and the pro qualifiers, I, I suffered. I just, at six foot, I did not have enough volume in my legs in particular uh, to compete with those guys. They're shorter and thicker. Uh, but a lot of it was just because my, my hypertrophy training program was not optimal. 
I was trying to lift heavy to grow. And so yeah. I went and deadlift 700 pounds every week. And that, that's not an optimal stimulus. I got really strong. And, uh, you know, my first powerlifting meet, I think back in their first three lift meet, all the way back in 93 or 94, uh, I totaled over 2,000. I totaled elite. And that's because I was in the gym crushing myself with as heavy weights as I could every single week, week after week for damn near 10 years. Uh, I got very, very strong, but I didn't get very big. And so, uh, you know, I learned that lesson late in my career, what optimal, what was optimal for hypertrophy. And, uh, and that's when I was able to really perform well at a, at a, you know, at a top level and get my pro card. Wow. Yeah. I feel like a lot of average people looking to bulk up, me included, would just think heavyweights equals more body mass, but that's not true at all. Nope. Not even a little bit. No, not even a little bit. Oh my goodness. I mean, I, I, I kind of want to pick your brain about the, uh, again, we were kind of talking about the mental side of it. Cause again, like if you work your ass off in a sense to gain all of that muscle and then you do something wrong along the way or your body just naturally goes down because sometimes it's like that's maybe not your natural body weight you know that's not your natural body muscle and you go down and then there's the psychological warfare of just thinking like oh I was better then like I need to continue to go down this path and then you know, like especially, I feel like for bodybuilders, it's it's almost whether you're a bodybuilder, strength uh, uh, trainer, whatever, you go through that psychological warfare and saying that like it's almost never good enough. Like you're never satisfied with the way you're looking in a sense, so you're constantly trying to get bigger, badder, stronger. Hundred percent, it's never good enough. That's why we keep yeah. we're so driven, not because we. Uh, like what we see, but because we don't like what we see, and we're trying to continually improve it. We're a group of the most insecure, unsatisfied people on the planet. Uh, and even on the day of the show, you know, you feel terrible about your performance. And as great as you may look from the outside looking in, we're very disappointed, uh, you know, and always trying to improve. Same thing with powerlifting. You know, it's always, oh, I could have gotten 10 more here, 10 more there. And then you're already, you know, focused on the next event, trying to. Uh, increase your numbers. A uh, couple things that are challenging about it. You know, Joe Rogan said uh, one time that it's like building a sandcastle. Eventually, the waves come in and it all goes away. Yeah. Uh, that's becoming more and more relevant to me as I age. I'm 53 now. I can't lift the weights I used to lift. I, it's hard to maintain, uh, you know, a significant amount of mass as you age, which I'm not too concerned with. You know, I've lost 50 pounds since I was powerlifting, and I'm I'm happy with my health and my energy, uh, and my my joints all feel good, and so. I'm training for a different reason, but I, you know, I love the pumps and I love um, maintaining a, you know, a low body fat and staying fit. Uh, but also, you become what I call a victim of your own circumstance when you're competing. Uh, and I talked about this in a video one time in a Rhino's rant. Where I said that, you know, the bigger and stronger you get, the more that you're obligated to do to support that mass and strength. Uh, or it's going to go away, meaning you got to sleep more, eat more, train more uh, in order to improve. And when you improve, you got to eat more, sleep more, train more to maintain yeah. those improvements. And it, it's just, it's a never ending uh, cycle. Um, it's, I have also said this it's twice as hard to gain, meaning you got to eat more, sleep more, train more, and harder, but half as hard to maintain a significant amount of that. I can probably be within 90% of my top end uh, uh, muscularity, you know, body composition uh, with half the amount of training, maybe only training once a week and doing eight sets for that body part, uh, you know, two exercises, four sets of each. 
I don't lose much uh, because you've spent so many years building it. Uh, it's uh, twice as hard to gain, half as hard to maintain. And so at some point after I retired and I kept trying to lift with the same amount of frequency and intensity and um, uh, found that it was just impossible to hold on to that much size as I got older and older and to recover as, as, as well as I did when I was younger, uh, I was afraid to do less. And then when I was forced to do less, when I got so busy with work and traveling and stuff, yeah. I just designed a, a program that, you know, I could, that would accommodate my schedule. And then I started challenging myself to see how little I could do. And it, it's almost embarrassing to talk about. I feel bad sometimes. I was just on the phone yesterday on a consult with a client who's uh, 42 years old. He's 11 years younger than me. And the amount of frequency and volume that he's still trying to do, even though he's not competing, was extraordinary, and I'm bigger and stronger than he is by a good 20 pounds or more of muscle, and he's been lifting for 20 years, and he was a competitor, uh, and I, I, I told him, I said, you're going to be angry when you hear uh, how little you really need to do to maintain a significant uh, percentage of where you're at, but you're going to feel so much better, and sure enough, um, within like two days, it was a couple days ago I talked to him, he had made some minor modifications, and within two days, he was like, oh, my God, I feel so great. <laughs> you know, his energy levels, his sleep improved, uh, and it was it was some small things. I, I he, he wanted to, to be low-carb, and I, I said, well, that's fine and dandy, generally speaking, but around your workouts, particularly if you're going to do hypertrophy training for an hour and then go do boxing later that night, right. uh, you're, you're going to want to fuel that with some, some simple carbs. Uh, and secondly, I just had him stop doing heavy deadlifts and squats because his lumbar was just taking a beating, and he, he wasn't recovering. He was walking around in a fog all the time, uh, you know, and sore and not recovering. And so just a couple of days away from even things like bent rows and, and stiff-legged deadlifts, anything that hits your lumbar, there's a whole host of alternative exercises that are equally as good that have a lot less systemic fatigue. And you can pepper in those exercises periodically with much less frequency, uh, if you if you still intend to you know if you, if you enjoy them and want to maintain uh, you know some top end strength in one of those exercises, you don't have to do them very often. And uh, he's you know really enjoying just making those small changes, which I was forced to make many years ago when I realized I was crushing myself and it was taking away from uh, my ability to perform you know, everywhere else with my family and my kids and my job and my travel, uh, the time constraints just made it prohibitive for me. And I was frustrated that I wasn't, um, you know, training hard enough. And I realized I, I just wasn't training smart enough. Right. And so now, you know, people are shocked. Obviously I'm training a lot more with John just because, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's my job. Uh, but when, you know, when I'm not training with an athlete like that, I'm training myself and traveling like I was almost every weekend doing seminars all over the world. Uh, sometimes I would only get a 20 minute workout in doing dips and chin ups, you know, alternating back and forth. And uh, that was sufficient. I'd, I'd, I hardly lost any, any size or strength or body composition, just doing a maintenance program with probably three workouts a week that didn't last more than 30 minutes. Now, is that based on maintenance and just consistency, or is it like an intense short amount of time where you got, like, when you're going in, like, you know, it's going to be an intense, quick workout? It's a hard workout, but again, the intensity, if you're working your muscles as opposed to your, your spine, 
it's a very different, it's almost refreshing when you're doing exercises that, that feel good and don't hurt your joints. You just have to pick the right exercises and, and do them appropriately uh, in the right rep ranges so that you're, you're not crushing yourself and, and constantly having, you know, tendonitis issues or, uh, again, that high fatigue, high central nervous system overload from a lot of uh, lower back volume. Mm. Yeah, I, I could see how, how that is. I mean, again, like, would you, would you think that hypothetically, because I feel like your business revolves around, you know, everything that you've done as well, uh, hypothetically, if you had stopped working out, because you mentioned like some of the guys you train with, like s- simple switches, whether it be diet, you know, uh, simple switches, you know, changing not only their diet, their sleep schedule, they're sleeping a lot better, their joints are freed up, which I feel like is a huge factor as well when it comes to not only heavy training, but just training in general. Do you think that if you had stopped, like, do you think if you wanted to, could you stop lifting or is it like literally just like the biggest itch in the world that you got to get out of the way first thing in the morning? Uh, I love to do it so I wouldn't stop. And I've talked in my stress for success rant rant about how important it is for me mentally, uh, just how refreshing it is and and how it lowers my stress and uh, it just makes me more effective in everything else I do. Uh, But you would have a significant amount of muscle loss if you stopped lifting. There should be some sort of maintenance program, but it doesn't have to be significant. Uh, you do consistency is is going to be key there, and so again, try and schedule it in so that it becomes part of your lifestyle. Uh, sometimes it takes longer to drive to and from the gym than it does if you've just got a uh, a couple of pieces of equipment in the garage and you could bang out a, a workout there. It doesn't have to be a full gym. You could do everything you need with a squat rack with a you know movable bench. Uh, do some chin-ups and squats and deadlifts and, uh, you know, bench presses and push-ups and dips and grab a little rack of, you know, a little, like, uh, power block of dumbbells. And uh, those workouts become regenerative, re- reju- rejuvenating. Right. Uh, talk about this in terms of cardio, too. Not only is cardio not good for, not, not optimal for weight loss, it's good for health. It's great for your heart health. And, uh, but it's also not not terribly effective for weight loss. It's not terribly, it's not often not enjoyable or sustainable. The idea of driving to the gym and getting on a treadmill for 40 minutes. So I incorporated the 10 minute walks and now I get my heart rate elevated. I can do it three times a day after meals. It helps me with recovery. It helps me with digestion. It helps me with blood sugar control. Uh, probably one of the health, healthiest thing I ever implemented. And I did that as far back as 2009 with Mark Bell when I put a recumbent bike in my hotel room to recover from the heavy squat sessions that we were doing. I used to just lay in bed and try and recover. And I would find that my doms would last for days yeah. from those heavy 800-pound squat sessions. But when I got on that recumbent bike that evening after squats and then three times the next day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and started doing just a 10-minute spin, it was more like a hit session. I would do 40 to 50 seconds of, of a, a moderately fast spin under some modest tension and then 10, 15-second rest. I would repeat that 10 times. I have a little pump in my legs, but it would be all concentric. It would be a light load. It would be mostly pumping blood. Uh, I would be ready. You know, we would squat Sunday, and by Tuesday, I almost felt like I could squat again because I, I, I moved more. and I pumped a ton of blood into my body with frequency. That's a pretty important thing, not just volume or intensity, but with frequency. So I encourage the three 10-minute walks. They're sustainable. I do them everywhere I go when I travel, whether I'm at the airport or at a hotel in the morning, uh, even if it's bad weather, I can just walk up and down the hallways and up the stairs and the hotels or at the airport uh, and every night before bed. And it's, it's refreshing and it's extremely healthy. Uh, so 
And, and it's all the exercise you need. Three 10-minute walks a day is 210 minutes a week. Um, you know, about 140, 150 minutes a week is what's recommended for general health. So it actually exceeds the guidelines. And as long as it's a brisk walk and you can get your heart rate slightly elevated, uh, and do that consistently, you don't need any more. And if you enjoy doing more and there's something you like, like jujitsu or boxing or uh, aerobics or whatever your, your preference is, I've always said the best exercise is the one you'll do. Uh, but in terms of need, in terms of longevity, in general health, heart health, overall, uh, that what I just described, three 10-minute walks a day and a couple of uh, weightlifting workouts a week, and that could be you know push-ups and air squats for, for all that matters if you just don't have the time or the access to the facilities. Um, that's sufficient uh, in terms of general health and reducing all-cause mortality and having good lifespan and health span. That's sufficient. And so... Uh, you know, and even more importantly than controlling calories to maintain a healthy body weight, a healthy BMI. That's where the vast majority of the effort should be focused uh, because you can't out-exercise a bad diet. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I, you obviously, you know, share this information, whether it be in your Rhino Rants on YouTube, on your channel, you got your book. I, I definitely want to talk to you about the vertical diet because to me that, that, that there's a lot of – interesting aspects correct me if i'm wrong like red meat red meat consumption would go up in a sense as opposed to everything else well let's let's start at the top the calories are king uh right it's it is an energy balance equation you know and total daily energy intake and total daily energy expenditure uh people like to, to minimize that and uh, by saying calories in calories out doesn't work but fact of the matter is is the energy balance equation accounts for things like um, uh, thermic effect of food, fiber intake in terms of calories in and calories out. It accounts for things like hormones, uh, testosterone, um, thyroid function. The, uh, the vertical or the, the energy equation accounts for all of those things. Mm. It, uh, it is, uh, you know, it's a law of thermodynamics, and you you absolutely have to maintain a calorie deficit if you want to lose weight. How you choose to do that becomes a matter of personal preference. Whether uh, eating a keto diet helps you maintain a deficit or a um, you know, intermittent fasting or uh, vegan or whatever. I have clients that are all of those, and, and the vertical diet applies to all of them because it focuses on, uh, you know, the scientific foundation of, of weight loss and, uh, you know, lean mass retention and general health, uh, meaning sufficient micronutrients. So let's start there, and then let's say, secondly, that you need uh, sufficient protein. After calories, after you equate for calories and protein, where you move carbs and fats in terms of a total percentage is personal preference. So protein is, is very important for retaining lean mass, but protein by itself, adequate protein by itself won't retain lean mass in a calorie deficit. You do have to have a stimulus. You do need to lift. Uh, that's why it's one of the first things I encourage folks to do. Um, and again, the best exercise is the one you'll do, but try and find some way to create mechanical tension, whether it's bands or uh, any kind of, you know, even, even walking upstairs with, you know, because you're using one leg at a time. Uh, could be a sufficient stimulus at least to maintain some lean mass. Um, but you need adequate protein, and, and, and I, you know, I recommend about a gram of protein per pound of lean weight or goal weight. Uh, now, how do you get that protein? Say you're you know, a 200-pound individual, uh, you need 200 grams of protein a day. There's lots of choices. Most of the animal proteins in a sufficient dose, which would be around 20-plus grams, 30-plus grams of protein at a, at a sitting, uh, provides adequate leucine to, to maximize muscle protein synthesis. And, and so, you know, that, that kind of doesn't bode well for snacking because you do like to get a minimum of 20 grams of protein in. Uh, 
and you want that protein to have sufficient leucine, so animal proteins in that dose are optimal. And now get a variety of proteins because it provides you a whole host of micronutrient benefits. Right. And I'm just saying in terms of a good, better, best scenario, uh, red meat is superior to, say, chicken or turkey uh, or pork because it's higher in iron, it's higher in B12, it's higher in zinc. And then it can be just as lean. You know, a top sirloin steak is, is very lean, and you can get into a grass-fed uh, uh, sirloin tip or a top round and get, get down to almost the same fat content as a chicken breast if that's your concern. Uh, but I encourage getting at least 25%, probably more, fats a day because that's going to go to hormone production. Now you're talking about your testosterone and, and energy that way. Um, you know, and your ADE and K, your vitamins are moved around with those uh, those fats. Um, and every cell in the body has a, you know, a lipid bilayer. It's a fatty membrane that you need the fats in order to transport nutrients in and out. So, uh, yes, I do preferentially recommend red meats, or at least I don't exclude it, uh, which often happens, particularly for women, because they end up getting low in iron and B12 and zinc, and then they lose their energy and end up at the doctor's office getting injections for those very things. Um, and so I don't exclude it by any stretch of the imagination. Examine.com just came out with a, uh, a really comprehensive meta-analysis of, uh, of randomized controlled trials that demonstrated that red meat does not increase inflammation. It does not increase glycemia. It does not increase um, LDLs. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the epidemiology that's been strewn around uh, by, you know, anti-meat folks such as the vegan community and PETA, et cetera, is always epidemiology. It's always highly confounded by the healthy user bias, those folks that, that uh, generally eat more red meat also eat the fries and the, uh, the shakes and the, um, you know, the, the bacon um, and the soda pops. And so they tend to weigh more, drink more, smoke more, exercise less, what we call the healthy user bias. And um, uh, when, you, um, when you account for that uh, and you use healthy individuals who consume red meat, you find that it does not contribute to any of the health problems that have been that it's been maligned with over the years. Um, the World Health Organization uses IARC uh, to do some of the, that research, and IARC only looked at epidemiology. And uh, IARC was largely composed of publishing vegans, so no bias there. Even right. they, and they didn't claim any bias, which is ridiculous. Uh, so, you know, I don't mean to get down a rabbit hole with this, but. Uh, and it's not all red meat. You know, now you've got, you know, 200 grams of protein a day. You want to get a few eggs in, uh, two or three eggs a day, because it's loaded with biotin and biotin and choline, which are really important for skin, hair, and nails, and for liver health, uh, and another great protein source. Um, so the egg yolk's like a multivitamin, and, and that's why it's frustrating when gurus start eliminating egg yolks and, and substitute it with peanut butter, of all things. It isn't nearly as micronutrient-dense. Um also, fatty fish a couple times a week. You know, mm. Salmon has 200 times the omega-3s of, of meats, uh, so that's where you would go for those. Uh, yogurt, another great product. Some people can't tolerate the lactose in milk. Yogurt is much better tolerated, has lower lactose, and it has digestive enzymes in it. Uh, and the probiotics, uh, we're seeing some, some good stuff there with probiotics for the gut biome. Uh, so we throw some yogurt in there. But the time you use uh, all of these protein sources, you're getting a, a really healthy uh, broad spectrum of micronutrients in addition to the the uh, 
the, the protein that you need to eat daily. And of course you can throw a chicken in, you can throw a turkey in. Right. Those are also great protein sources. I, I just, anytime you focus on whole foods and, and the protein sources that come from uh, a variety of different animals, you're, you're going to get a, a very complete broad spectrum of micronutrients. Yeah, I feel like when it's all balanced, too, because that's always been the long-standing myth. Like, I'm a big steak guy. I, I like eating bison as well whenever I get a chance. Like, everybody, at least in my circle, says that too much red meat could be really bad for you. And I kind of just, you know, throw it off to the side. So would you say that that's more, because, again, you've done the research. You obviously have, have more information about it. Is that a myth or, like, way too much red meat really bad for you in your heart? There's no indication of that. That, really? that was my point. Examine.com is a highly regarded uh, group, an unbiased group, largely composed of vegetarians. Kamal Patel, who, yeah. who runs, uh, he's a vegetarian who tried to go vegan a number of times, but he, his health was compromised as a result. Uh, and he's so admittedly so, and he talks about that uh, in, in, the, uh, in the prelude to this analysis that these aren't biased individuals and they, they don't receive funding from anybody. They don't sell supplements and they don't sell meat, uh, you know, and, and they, they're, they're very supportive of vegan diets and have a lot of information. I have a whole chapter on veganism and I have vegan clients that even compete in uh, physique and figure and bikini. So uh, in my book, I, I, I discuss it and it's an option if that's what you prefer and it's for ethical reasons. Um, but you don't need to malign red meat in order for you to make your personal choices about, you know, for other people in order to make your personal choices. Um, and that was randomized controlled trials. It was, uh, it was a lot of, it was a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. And they didn't find any of, of the claims to be valid uh, regarding uh, poor health outcomes with uh, red meat. So, uh, you know, I just, it's just gotten tired and old. And then they start moving the goalposts into environments um, and that's been well studied. Um, uh, there's, I have a, another reference to that in, in the book as well. Um, so there's there's plenty of, of different ways that people try and dis dissuade you or discourage you from consuming healthy foods if it if it doesn't fit their um, particular diet preference or their you know ethics. Uh, and I, I just think it's entirely unjustified and unnecessary. And my concern is is that the the restriction. Uh, as mentioned with those guru diets, the, the egg white, tilapia, and broccoli diets that most uh, bikini girls have been on for 30-plus years that I've been in the business, um, do lead to health problems. We do see it manifest in anemia, which is low iron, amenorrhea, which is the cessation of the menstrual period, um, you know, hypocalcemia, which is low calcium, and now they end up with shin splints and things like that, particularly if they're athletic. Um, you know, the choline deficient or the biotin deficiency from eliminating egg yolks, and eating a ton of egg whites, which, uh, you know, the avidin protein binds to biotin. So now you got dry skin, hair, and nails. Uh, the hypothyroidism that results from the lack of sleep and the lack of iodine and the lack of sodium and the overtraining. Uh, now their hair starts falling out. Uh, those are all things that are very common in the industry. And, you know, it used to be confined to that industry, which, you know, uh, is bad enough as that is. It was a small group. And over the last less than a decade, probably seven years, the fitness figure, physique, bikini, wellness, uh, you know, social media, health uh, environment has exploded. And now you've got lots and lots of people getting ready and competing in these shows. And so they're more visible. There's more of them and they're more visible. So now the, the worst thing is, is the soccer moms, you know, just the folks that aren't competing, start adopting these diets because they see these girls in the quote unquote best shape of their lives. 
and they don't understand all of the downsides, and so they suffer all the side effects, uh, you know, quietly and end up at the doctor's office, like I said, getting shots for B12 and iron, um, glutathione and whatever else, and their energy's crashed, and um, you know, hypothyroidism and, get, and on, on thyroid medication, yeah. and then antidepressants, which is really sad mm. because, uh, you know, and then they have that, you know, with, I mentioned earlier, all the weight loss and weight gain and that, that yo-yo dieting down and bulking up uh, or regaining the weight. We found that to be even worse than maintaining your heavy weight and exercising. The yo-yo dieting seems to have uh, uh, pretty poor health outcomes. Uh, long term, because you lose muscle mass and end up having poor body composition, uh, less lean mass overall. So that's when I started screaming and yelling from the rooftops about these uh, guru diets and is when, you know, average folks started suffering from all the side effects that were the result of these starvation diets and loss of sleep and too much cardio and all of their hormone uh, issues and health issues. So it's kind of been the foundation of the vertical diet from when I released it uh, some six years ago. Yeah, I was showing uh, a few of my buddies that because, again, like I eat so much red meat and they keep telling me I'm going to die. And I'm like, I don't think there's anything to back that. I think that's ridiculous. So I'm definitely going to show them this clip. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to ask yeah, you about refer them to or refer them to examine dot yeah. and their latest article is uh, is well cited uh, and it's a very deep dive. It's, it's a great read. Oh, def I'm definitely going to be looking back at this. But the, the last thing I wanted to pick your brain about, just because I was very curious about it from an entrepreneurship standpoint, and I guess I, I definitely would love to talk again in the future more about that side and the way you've gone about your business and building certain brands when it comes to not only content creation, but being able to figure out all of this other stuff is um, your appearance on Shark Tank. You know, like, it's obviously a, a lot goes into it. You know, a lot probably went into getting that, you know, just beating the odds to get on the show in the first place for the cooler. But I think we have the video. I don't want to play it for too long because I don't know if we have YouTube copyrights. But uh, it's basically you, you know, shoulder pressing over... 200 pounds there's the picture right there of the cooler uh you obviously making the deal is that legitimately you doing that or is that hollow weights in front of a camera no that's legitimate wow. i borrowed that uh, from a strong man uh, that lives here in town here in vegas and wow. uh, hauled all those weights down there myself including that 800 pound tire i had to get a trailer and haul that stuff down there and, and bring it in to set it up myself oh my uh, goodness presentation yeah. See, I, I always thought that was just a wooden floor, and you just slammed 600 pounds on the floor right there. I thought it was just going to go through the floor. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I picked that tire up, that rug, as you'll notice, uh, isn't affixed to the floor. The front of the tire is on the wood. So the rug right. started rolling up underneath my feet. And so I was really – I didn't have any leverage to push, so I was kind of bicep curling, and I almost missed the lift. Uh, but it was it was fun. The hardest part is is that you're so nervous that you lose your air. You know, you're you have an adrenaline dump just walking in there under the cameras and the hot lights and everybody standing there staring at you. I did a fun video called um, uh, Shark Tank Behind the Scenes. It's one of my YouTube rants where I talked about it in detail. The whole process from applying uh, to getting on the show to presenting to the uh, post show negotiations, etc. So it's. Uh, uh, it was an interesting time. Those are those are always fun experiences. I'm fortunate to have been able to do that. From a business perspective and like a business mind with all of this stuff that you're putting out, you know, we talked about whether it be the YouTube channel, you're doing podcasts, you're, you're, you have a book, you know, you're doing all of this stuff. Where does that rank when it comes to overall 
not only monetization, but overall just wide um, audience views when it comes to your product? Like, do you think if you hadn't made that deal, the cooler would be where it is today? No. Uh, and we had to suspend cooler manufacturing because the cost of goods skyrocketed in China. Wow. And then shipping, as you know, shipping almost doubled in cost. The tariffs went up as a result of the, uh, of the trade war with China. Um, and so it pinched away all the profits. By the time you sell to a, um, a reseller who sells to a, a retailer who sells to a customer, uh, you're making a buck or two a unit. And, but you've got to pay four or five months in advance, damn near $100,000 to bring a shipping container with you know, thousands of coolers over here and then store them. Uh, so it, it was, it, for the time being, we had to suspend uh, bringing them in here because the margins weren't very good. But speaking in general terms, that got into 10 million homes. Yeah. And then they repeated it. It's probably been played a dozen times over the last three years in uh, you know in syndication and um, and in uh, on different channels with reruns etc. So it's just in terms of name recognition. Even though it was the cooler, it's still Stan Efforting. Um, I think it it really contributed to all of the media that I've been fortunate to have received from working with Flex Wheeler, from being in uh, Muscular Development magazine had a huge layout on me many years ago. Flex Magazine sponsored me, and I was in their magazine monthly for many, many, many months. Uh, the cover of Power Magazine and all those videos with Mark Bell and all the content that, you know, it just, it all adds together. You know, there's so many different platforms now, Instagram, YouTube, The Rants. Um, I've got probably in excess of 100 million views combined from uh, a lot of the, you know, even our interview today. You know, it, it just creates awareness, um, name recognition. Uh, and so when I released the Vertical Diet some years ago as an ebook, uh, it was uh, very well received and distributed all over the world. Over 100,000 people uh, downloaded and accessed it, and, and you just go anywhere, and people kind of recognize your name or your face or your brand. And it's hard to buy that, you know. Right. Um, and so that was it was one piece of a very um, comprehensive marketing effort that's uh, that's afforded me this platform to get out, which I you know I, I take very Seriously, and, and that's why I recruited and partnered with a registered dietitian who's a PhD, was head of the dietetic department at UNLV, and we took a deep dive and, and went through everything that I was promoting and made sure that our verbiage, you know, my anecdotes and testimonials were supported by science and peer-reviewed published research, which we included over 500 references. Uh, you know, I'm always constantly referring people to those, like when you say, Stan said red meat was fine. I'm like, no, examine.com. Yeah. You know, a, a whole group of PhD researchers who did a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials is saying that. Uh, so I, I've kind of become more of a conduit now between, uh, you know, the science and the clients. And that's uh, uh, trying to make it easy for them so they don't have to know the things we know or learn the things we learn because they've got other, you know, priorities in life. And so they come to me and they say, you know, Stan, what's the best this? That's always the yeah. question. And, you know, and I try and provide them a very specific answer. Tell me exactly what to do is the question I get. You know, don't fill me full of words I don't know right. uh, and confuse me, uh, you know, and exhaust me. Uh, so that, that's been my focus with the book. The ebook that I have on my site, I've updated now three times. It was vertical at 1.0, then 2, now 3.0, and I'm coming out with the 4.0 soon. 
the ebook's kind of a membership of sorts because I, I provide the updates for free to anybody who's bought a previous version. Uh, and I answer questions. I've had over 100,000 DMs, texts, and emails in the last four years that I've responded to the vast majority of. And I've used those questions or comments or uh, you know testimonials, et cetera, to up, continue to update the book with that information and provide it again for free to those people who have bought a previous copy. But a lot of folks asked about a hard copy. They like to mark it up and highlight it right. and have it on their shelf. And so we partnered with Victory Belt, who did, made a beautiful book with color paper pages and, uh, you know, pictures and menu plans and the whole like. So uh, we're proud of both products and, uh, you know, we, we put them out there for everybody to, to be able to use. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're one of those people, too, that reads a book and you highlight things and then you go back. You don't reread the book. You just reread the highlights. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you, and you have to, I'm, you know, in order to learn the information or at least to remind you, I've said that about when I trained with Flex Wheeler. It's not what he taught me. It's what he it's 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 uh, what he helped me to understand was most important things I already knew but didn't prioritize correctly, uh, and that's you know we just focused on the big rocks and so I talk a lot about uh, you know the ninety nine percent you know the sleep eat and train and then I also talk about the one percent which might provide a small benefit but not to get you know sidetracked uh, you've heard me say you know if you're getting uh, if you're religiously taking your five grams scooper of creatine every day, but sleeping four hours a night, you're a fucking idiot. Right. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. because one is so much more important than the other. And with respect to women, the same thing. If you're getting up at 4 a.m. after five hours of sleep to do fasted cardio, uh, you're stepping over $100 bills to pick up nickels because you're going to lose half muscle with that uh, fat. And the research continues to, to support that fact. That, uh, you know, if you want to retain lean body mass, you want to have good insulin sensitivity, uh, and you want to retain, uh, you have good workouts, you got to get your seven plus hours in. That's the priority. That's where you start and everything else, you know, goes on from there. Well, this is a lot of great information. I have so much more I'd love to talk to you about, but I'll let you go. I know you're a busy guy. You got a ton on your plate. Uh, again, Stan, thanks so much for being gracious enough to take the time the last hour to talk to me. The Vertical Diet, the, um, the Vertical Diet Volume 4 is coming out soon. Uh, this was Episode 435 of the podcast. Zach, if you want to put a bow on it, go ahead. Catch new episodes of The O Show for free, available on all audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. For full video versions of the podcast, head on over to YouTube and StarWorldWideNetworks.com. The O Show is presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness is an inclusive, high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ Floyd Money Mayweather himself. The best group boxing workout in the market, Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.